Hey guys, what's up? So, tonight we're starting a new series called Living Hope. Living Hope. I think, I think we all need a little hope. Everybody needs hope, no matter where we're at in our life. Um, good times, bad times. We need to be reminded that we need hope and who our hope is found in. And that's really what this series is about. We're looking through the book of 1 Peter. Uh, I'd say it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. There's just so much rich content in the book of 1 Peter. So that's what we're getting into tonight. So the book of 1 Peter was written by a guy named, guess what? Peter. John. John. Okay. Get out. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the guy named Peter, right? So Peter was a fisherman. Peter was writing this letter to Christians that were scattered throughout the area that is modern-day Turkey. Anybody ever been to Turkey in this room? Okay, a couple of people. This guy, Josh, loves to talk about Turkey. You been to Turkey, Caleb? No? Or are you just thinking about Thanksgiving? Okay, anyways, so <laughs> writing to people that are in modern-day Turkey, not related to uh, the bird, but this was also written during the reign of an emperor named Nero who persecuted Christians. And so Peter is writing this letter to encourage Christians to give them hope in the middle of their suffering. Suffering comes to all of us at different points in our life. Maybe right now you guys are going through a season of suffering in your life. Whether you're in that season right now or you will be someday, we need to know about the living hope that we have in Christ that we're going to look at here in the book of 1 Peter. Something interesting that I learned through studying this is that Judaism in the Roman Empire was the only religion that was not required to offer sacrifices to the Roman emperor. Okay, so they kind of had this special privilege. And at first, when, when Christianity began, there began to be more and more Christians, they kind of assumed Christians were part of this Jewish sect of faith. So Christians were not required to make sacrifices to the Roman emperor, but... Eventually, the Jews kicked the Christians out of the synagogues because, of course, Christians believe that Jesus was the Christ and the Jews did not. And so the Christians were then seen as being separate from the Jewish faith. And now that the Christians were separate from the Jewish faith or viewed that way uh, from that secular world. They were required by that law to make sacrifices and worship the Roman emperor. Which, of course, Christians don't want to do, right? Because we confess that Jesus is Lord, not that Caesar, the emperor, is Lord. And so because of this, persecution began. Christians were persecuted and some were even driven from their homes. So Peter is writing this letter to Christians, some of whom were driven from their homes. They're in the, the dispersion, is what he calls it, throughout this area. So we're going to start out in the book of 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Capoda, that's a tough word, Cappadocia, something like that, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. When you read the letters of the New Testament, I love the greetings that they give. There's just so much rich content in the greetings. We could probably do a whole series just on like the greetings, the way that Paul greets the church, the way that James, you know, all these people, people greet the church at the beginning of their letters. But we're not going to get too much into the greeting this morning. We're going to start out with our first point this morning is this. Tonight. Sorry. Habit. I don't know why. 
The first point tonight is that Jesus can change your life. Jesus can change your life. You don't be wondering, how do I get that from this? I love the way that Peter starts out this letter. He starts it out by saying, Peter. And when I asked you guys at the beginning of this message, who wrote the book of 1 Peter? You said Peter, and that's true, but Peter wasn't his real name. What was his real name? Simon. It's Simon, right? In fact, who was the first person to call him Peter? It was Jesus. Jesus gave him a nickname, Peter. And it was, you know, in the Greek, there's a little bit of a pun, a play on words. You are Peter, Petros, the Greek word rock. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. But Peter was a nickname that Jesus gave Simon. But I love that Simon, Peter, whatever you want to call him, he doesn't start out this letter like an official way saying his, his name that he was given as a baby. He starts out saying the name that Jesus gave him. That's the way he identifies himself to people. It's by the nickname that Jesus gave him. Simon Peter. Peter, it means rock. Peter had this stubborn fighting spirit about him. That, that was just Peter's attitude. And so I don't know if the reason why Jesus called Peter rock had something to do with that. You're a rock, you're stubborn, you're hard sometimes. I don't know what it is, but this is the name that Jesus gave him. Peter got in trouble. Peter, uh, we know from the Bible, he made bad choices. He was stubborn, but God wanted to use those things about his personality and his past for good. People, Peter wanted people to know Peter, not Simon. That's the way he introduced himself. He wanted to show them that God can use anyone. He wanted for people to know that God changed him, that God gave him this new name. And some of you guys might have things about yourself, about your own personality. Maybe you're stubborn like Peter is. Maybe you're crazy like Paul was, right? Maybe you're a troublemaker like Peter and Paul was. Paul wrote a bunch of letters in the Bible. He was in jail when he wrote a lot of the New Testament. A lot of the New Testament was written by a guy sitting in a prison cell. And so we have these things made about our personality or about our past that we think need to be completely gone away with when we come to Christ. Okay, I'm a Christian now. Now these things about my personality, my stubbornness, my conviction, these things, God's not going to use that. God's going to change that into something different. But I don't think that's what we see in Scripture. I think what we see in Scripture is that God takes who we are, the good, the bad, the ugly, the good, the bad, the ugly things about our past, the good, the bad, the other thing, ugly things about our personality, whether we're stubborn or people pleasers or whatever that may be. God takes those things about us and God works those things for good. God wants to use all of you for his kingdom. And by all of you, I don't just mean all of you in this room like you, you, you. I mean all of you individually. God wants to use all of you, all the different aspects of who you are, all the different aspects of your past, your accomplishments, your failures, your mistakes. God wants to use all of you just the way God used all of Simon Peter. Because the Bible doesn't say that God demolishes all the bad things in our life and uses our good parts for good. The Bible says God works all things for good. Everything in our entire lives. God wants to use all of you. Peter starts out this letter giving this greeting, talking about salvation, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we could go into lots of details about how the Trinity, the one God, 
shown through three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, work in salvation. The Father chooses us to be saved. The Holy Spirit indwells in us. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. Christ uh, helps us to be obedient to him as we abide in him, the vine. We are the branches. He cleanses us by sprinkling with his blood. We are saved by his sacrifice on the cross. That's kind of like a brief statement about what Peter is talking about here in this greeting. Again, we could do like a whole, we could talk about that for a really long time, but we aren't tonight. But that's what he starts out with, starting this greeting, talking about salvation. And then he says, to these Christians who are being persecuted, to these Christians who have been driven from their homes, perhaps, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I love it's not just, may, be, may you have some grace and peace. Like, here's a little bit. I'll throw some out your way. It's like, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's like exponentially. You might be wondering, how could grace and peace be multiplied to these Christians at this time? As the infant church is struggling and undergoing all this suffering and persecution, how could Peter say, may grace and peace be multiplied to you? I read this story. Uh, this is a pretty recent story. An article came out last year. A woman named Harriet. I don't know if Harriet's the, the real name. Usually they, they put a fake name to protect the identities of the people in these stories. But Harriet lived in the town of Gazbeta, Chad. And I looked up, Chad is in about the central area of Africa. So she's a, a teacher and healer in the town of Gazbeta, Chad. Her beliefs were kind of a blend of Islam and uh, folk religion. And so she believed that she had some spirits that would come and tell her things that were wrong with people. Uh, kind of a little, kind of a weird mixture of like the Islamic faith and a little bit of uh, voodoo, things like that. And so the spirits would come and tell her things like, hey, this person over here has this illness. This person over here uh, needs this treatment. And so then she would provide some kind of traditional herb or, or whatever to help these clients with their problems. And eventually, Harriet got sick. She wasn't a Christian. In her area, the Christians are looked at as being demon-possessed people. That's what Christians are viewed as. It might sound weird to us in America, but Christians are viewed differently in different parts of the world. And so she gets sick, and then Christians are the ones that come and bring her medicine. Christians are the ones taking care of her, making her a part of their oikos, right? And so these Christians, they're helping her out. And there was a Christian that was helping her that was a Muslim in their past and starts to talk to her about the Islamic faith and how they came from that faith to a faith in Jesus. And eventually Harriet decided to give her life to Christ. And after she gave her life to Christ, one of her adult children, so she's a little bit older, she has adult children. They shared this secret with their family that Harriet had become a Christian. So the secret was shared. Her family started to disown her. Her family, it says that her family abducted her and held her captive, demanding that she give them money that they had given her in her past because she wasn't their family anymore or not viewed as being their family anymore. So she lost her relationship with her family. She underwent persecution. She still undergoes persecution right now, today. Again, this article came out last year. And evil spirits was came to her with secrets, but today the Holy Spirit comes to her with songs. She wrote a song that says, When I am in trouble, Jesus wipes my tears away. When my children are in trouble, Jesus wipes my tears away. 
When people come and curse me, Jesus wipes my tears away. Whenever anxiety threatens to consume me, Jesus wipes my tears away. So Harriet sings songs like this to remind her about the truth of who Jesus is in the middle of her suffering, in the middle of her persecution. And she has no easy answers going forward, but she has peace. And this is the kind of peace that Peter is talking about when he's writing these letters to to the people spread throughout modern-day Turkey. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the middle of your suffering. Even though your faith in Christ is the thing that, that people are persecuting you for, the thing that's bringing you this suffering, your faith in Christ is going to be the thing that gives you the grace and peace to get through this suffering. Let's pick it up in 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 3 through 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I love that verse. There's so, there's just so much in that verse. Because Jesus is alive, amen? amen? Jesus is alive, amen? amen? He's alive. He's our living hope. Our hope is not dead. Our hope is not found in dead, temporary things that aren't going to fulfill us in our life. Our hope is found in Christ. It's an inheritance that's imperishable. It's, undefi- it's undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. God's power is the thing that's going to get you through this. God's power is the thing that's going to give you that hope that you need in your life. It talks about faith and hope. The next point tonight is that your faith will last. Really, your hope will last. As long as it's object. Your faith will last as long as it's object. So right now, I'm trying to have faith that the Dallas Mavericks are going to pull through. That's what I'm trying to have faith in right now. They've they're down 3-2 in this series. They had a really bad game yesterday. They had like eight to- total assists as a team. And I'm trying to have faith that they're going to pull through and make it to the finals. Who's with me? Yeah, that's right. She has to be, though. She, she signed the marriage license. So, <laughs> so I'm trying to have faith in this thing. But this is a temporary thing, right? And my faith is only going to last as long as the object of my faith, being the Dallas Mavericks to pull through. And as soon as they lose... Well, guess what? My faith is going to be destroyed because the object of my faith perished. Sports teams are not an imperishable object of faith, right? They're not. They're temporary. There's going to be another season. We'll get them next year, whatever it may be. We're we're still holding in there. But your faith will only last as long as its object. So if your faith or your hope is in popularity, guess what? That's only going to last till graduation. If your faith is in your athletic abilities, it's only going to last until you get injured or old. And one of those is going to happen. Your faith only lasts as long as its object. If your faith is in your ability, it only lasts as long as your ability is going to last in your life. If it's in a relationship, it only lasts as long as that relationship is going to last. Your hope only lasts until it dies. And there was a day where it felt like hope died. More than any other days, there was a man who carried a rugged cross 
up a hill and he was whipped so many times that he needed help to carry this cross up a hill and as he got to the top of this hill they laid him down on a cross and they lifted out his hands they dislocated his shoulders they nailed his hands and his feet to this cross they lifted him up from the ground and as he hung there the sky went black and he cried out that it is finished the earth trembled the veil in the temple that separated god from man tore from top to bottom and it was Friday, but Sunday was coming. It was Friday, but Sunday was coming. And I'm sure there was weeping, there was guilt, there was shame, despair, thinking, what could we have done differently for this to not happen? And as the people felt hopeless, heaven started counting to three, right? Heaven started counting to three. And on the third day, the women, they go to the tomb, and they see this angel, and the angel says, he is not here. Why? Because he is risen. Jesus is alive. He is not dead. And so they ran back and they told the disciples. The disciples were hopeless. The disciples were hiding in a room. It was the women that went to the temple. Peter and all his homeboys, they're hiding in a house behind a locked door. So the women run back to Peter and said, Jesus is alive. And Peter runs. He's probably like the fastest guy runs to see the empty tomb. To see that his Savior is alive. And years later, Peter is riding to the church. And I think he's remembering this. I think he's remembering the time where he felt hopeless. The time that he was hiding behind that locked door. His Lord, his master that he had been following for years and years had died. Maybe he felt like it was his fault. Like there's something he could have done differently. But he hears Jesus is alive. What he's hearing is my hope is not dead. My hope is alive. And he went and he saw the place where he was laid. And it was empty. And he saw the risen Christ as well. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus says, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I'm alive forevermore. Forevermore means forever, never ending. So if the object of your faith, the object of your hope is in Jesus, then your faith is never going to fail. Because your faith is only as good as his object. And Jesus is going to be around forevermore. Our living hope will never die. So if your hope is in Jesus, it doesn't last until you sin or you mess up. It doesn't last until you fail. Your hope doesn't last until the trials of life come to affect you. It doesn't last until the doctor says something you don't want to hear. Your hope and faith last forevermore because it's in Christ and he is alive forevermore. That's what it means to be born again to a living hope. So where's your faith tonight? What have you been putting faith in? What have you been putting your hope in? I don't even want your faith to be based on church. Because some point church ain't going to be around forever. It could be around for 50 years, 100 years, 200 years. I don't even know. It could be around for 10 years. Who knows? Jesus could come back before then. Some point church isn't going to be around forever. Don't put your faith in church. Don't put your faith in a pastor. Put your faith in Jesus because he's going to be around forevermore. Don't put your faith or have your faith be based on this, on this youth group, on redemption students. Because if you graduate and then you leave, you go off to college or, or whatever is the next stage of your life, but then you don't keep pursuing Christ, then your faith was never in Christ. Your faith was in a ministry. But if your faith is in Christ, then it's going to stay Forever, your hope is never going to fall. 
I don't even want the object of your faith to be in the Bible. Hold on. You guys are like, what the heck? What is Jared saying? Is Jared saying we're not supposed to believe the Bible? No, that's not what I'm saying. But the Bible isn't the object of your faith. I'm not the one that made that up. Jesus said that. You can take it up with him. This is what Jesus said. There's this time where the religious leaders were talking and, you know, Jesus was going back and forth with them or whatever. And, and Jesus was saying to them, you guys know the scriptures so well. And you search the scriptures because you believe that in them you will have life. But the scriptures point to me and you never turn to me to have life. What he's really saying is, words on a page will never save you. But the one that the words point to, he can save you. So your faith, we need to read the Bible, we need to learn from the Bible to learn about him, right? But the Bible won't save you. Words on a page won't save you. You have to turn to the one that the words are talking about. He's the one that has the power to give you this living hope. And if your faith is in him, then your faith is going to last through the trials. No matter what. Where am I? Here we go. Verse 4. Verse 4 says he's an imperishable. I love the, the adjectives we have here. Inheritance that is imperishable. Inheritance is not something you earn. It's something you receive, right? It's something that I'm given. It's an inheritance. It's not something that I bought. It's something that was bought for me. So Christ buys this inheritance for us. It's imperishable. It's undefiled, it's unfading, and it's kept in a safe place. It's kept in heaven. That's safer than any bank. It's a lot safer than any crypto, right? Heaven is a safe place to be kept. Have you guys ever gone to a hotel? And maybe your parents have, or you guys probably, you're not old enough to, like, reserve a hotel, right? Would you have to be 18? Most of you guys maybe haven't tried this. Okay, I don't know. So anyways, you go to a hotel, your parents go there, and they have this reservation, and the hotel's like, uh, I don't see you guys on the list here. Like, I don't see a reservation. Has that ever happened to anybody in your entire life? So maybe a couple of you guys. That's not a fun thing to happen, right? Because you go there, you make this reservation, you plan ahead, and there's no room for you. You're like, man, it's like Jesus. It reminds me, I don't know why I'm thinking of this, this office episode where Michael was like, when Jesus wasn't offered a room at an inn, wait, when Mary wasn't offered a room at the inn, Jesus was born. When Michael Scott wasn't offered a room at the inn, well, who knows what's going to happen? I don't know, office reference. Apparently none of you guys are fans, but it's okay. Shake it off. Okay, so heaven's not like hotels. That's the point I'm getting to. You're not going to get to heaven and then be like, uh, I, don't, I don't see your reservation here. Did you mess up on your reservation did you do something to get your reservation canceled? Heaven's not like that. If your reservation is bought with the blood of Jesus, it is imperishable. It's, undefi it's undefiled. It says it's unfading. You can't get marked off the books in heaven if Jesus has bought you with his blood. It is an everlasting life. Some people say, well, you can lose your salvation. Well, the Bible tells me that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So... Um, if I become a Christian and then I mess up and I can lose my salvation, then I guess my everlasting life didn't last very long. So then it wasn't really everlasting. But it is everlasting. It's imperishable. It's unfading. And your name is forever written on the book in heaven. Verse 6 through 9 says this. In this you rejoice, 
what we just talked about, your, your inheritance is kept in heaven, it's being guarded for salvation, ready to be revealed. In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The next point tonight is that our living hope persists through trials. Our living hope persists even through trials. Trials do a few things to us. The first thing, if we're honest, trials grieve us. Trials suck. Who likes going through trials? I don't. Good. None of you guys do too. I'm glad. Trials are not fun. Nobody likes trials. We are grieved by what we have to go through. And if you're a Christian, or if you're thinking about following Jesus, but you haven't made that choice yet, in following Christ, you're going to have trials. We don't become Christians because we think it's going to be an easier life for us. That's prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel says, you know, you give your life to Jesus, then God wants to make you healthy, wealthy all the days of your life. Everything's going to be great. You're going to have like private jets and nice cars and all this great stuff. That's not in my Bible. I don't know what version they're reading. I was about to roast on a version of the Bible. I'm not going to do that. So I don't know what version they're reading. I don't know where they're getting that message from. But anyways, so I lost my spot. <laughs> Only one person in the house tonight got that joke, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> where was I at? Oh, here it is. So we don't follow Christ because it's easy. We follow Christ because it's real. We follow him because it's real. I don't know why, but my brain thinks of the Matrix right now. We're like, you know, in the Matrix, I remember there's a character that he, got, he chose to live in the Matrix and get like all the riches and fame and glory and, and leave the real world because he would rather have a fake glory, a fake happiness than a real one and the suffering that came with the real one. But when you give your life to Christ, you get to have a real happiness. You get to have a real living hope that is kept in heaven for you. That's real. But you have to give up the fake one. You have to give up the fake temporary hope that you were living in before. So we have a real living hope and a real God, a real peace and a real joy in the middle of trials because he is alive forevermore. The second thing trials do, trials prove the genuineness of your faith. Who pronounces genuine? Genuine. Anybody? Okay, maybe I'm the only one. I, I thought if I said genuine, are people going to make fun of me? But okay. So genuine or genuine faith. So he uses an illustration here about fire. Fire, it says, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. So fire is a refining tool. You put gold or metal over a fire, it refines that metal to make it more pure. It takes away the impure things. It takes away the other metals or whatever is in there to make it pure gold. That's what it does. That's what the refining fire does. It proves what is genuine gold and what is not. That's what fire does. And trials are the fire of faith. Trials prove what is the genuine faith in your life and what is not. Do you have genuine faith or do you not? Trials are the fire of faith. Trials chip away at the bad habits, the parts of you that are holding on to those perishable things until all that remains in you is a genuine 
faith. I heard this illustration one time that in the refiner's fire, God is getting all these imperishable, uh, getting all these perishable things out of you until he sees his reflection in the gold. God wants to see his image in you, shining through you. So trials are the fire of faith. They also show if your faith is real in the first place. You can take a piece of plastic and make it look like a bar of gold, but you put that thing under the fire, you're going to find out pretty fast. This isn't gold. This is plastic, right? Have you ever smelled burning plastic before? So the fire is going to prove that. If anything is intrinsically worthless, it's not going to get past the refinery. The last thing is that trials give us a reason to praise God. It talks here uh, in verse 7, to be found in the result of the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it causes us to praise God. That's what trials do. I have this Old Testament teacher named Dr. Mooney. He was like from Alabama, but he had a British accent. Isn't that weird? He said his name like Dr. Mooney. He just told, he would like stand, this dude gave so much homework, let me tell you. I mean, it was crazy. But he would stand up there and tell like really long stories. He told this really funny story about someone like, was it like a crocodile bit them? I don't know. Some weird Alabama stuff. But anyways, Dr. Mooney shared one time, it was like his father, or father-in-law, was basically going towards his deathbed. And he had an IV on him, and he had, you know, an oxygen tube and all this stuff. And he's at church, and they're singing the song, Amazing Grace, at church. And he's praising God. And Dr. Mooney saw this, and he said, that's what worship looks like. Worshiping God in the middle of your trials. In the middle of the time that you know you're dying, you feel like you're dying. That's true worship. That's authentic worship, right? We talked about authentic worship uh, last fall. It means praising God no matter where you're at. So I want to finish tonight by asking you guys, where is your hope? Is your hope kept in heaven? Or is it here on earth where it's going to fade? You don't have to have a dead hope. You can have a living hope. I think, I want to be careful how I word this. Sometimes we think, I need to have a better faith. I need to have a stronger faith. And there's a sense in which there can be some truth in that. I don't want to, I don't want to negate that. But sometimes what we need isn't more faith. Sometimes we just need to change the object of our faith. Because maybe your faith feels weak right now because you're putting your faith in a weak object. You're putting your faith in a perishable object and you're not putting your faith wholly in Christ. If you're a believer, there are areas in your life where you still need refining. So all that remains in you is a genuine faith, a genuine living hope in Christ. And if you're not a believer, that living hope is for you. Jesus died for your sins. He rose from the grave and you can put your hope in him and have this imperishable salvation kept in heaven for you as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you that you've given us a living hope through Christ. Father, we thank you so much that you sent him to die for our sins, God, that he rose from the grave. Lord, we thank you and praise you for that. I pray that as we go through trials in our life, that we would keep our hope in you, that our faith would remain throughout our entire lives, not because it's in a person or in a group or in a church or even just on the words of the pages of the scripture, that our faith would be in the one that the words point to. Our faith would be holy and completely in you, God. And for anyone that needs refining tonight, I pray that you would refine them. Whatever trials need to happen for that to happen, God, that you would make us have a genuine faith in you. 
that strong, genuine faith, because you are the object of our faith. You are our living hope. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, quick announcement.